Hello there, it's been a while. I'm so delighted to be back for season two. Over the next several weeks, you can expect more deep dives into some of your favorite screwball comedies, as well as interviews with really smart film lovers. On this episode, I'll be discussing Easy Living from 1937, directed by Mitchell Lice and written by Preston Sturgis. It stars Gene Arthur, Ray Milland, Edward Arnold, and a cast of some incredible character actors like Frank Panborn, William Demarest, and Robert Gregg. Easy Living tells the story about a young working-class woman named Mary Smith, whose life is turned upside down after a $58,000 sable fur coat falls onto her head. She tries to return the coat to its rightful owner, J.B. Ball, and his wife, but she's mistaken for his mistress and begins to receive offers from people eager to capitalize on her social status. This causes a ripple effect in J.B.'s marriage, and later, the already fragile stock market. Mary falls in love with J.B.'s son, John, who is on the outs with his father. Together, they figure out a way to reunite JB with his wife and save the economy. In 1935, Preston Sturgis signed a lucrative $2,500 per week deal with Paramount. His first project was to transform Vera Kasperi's unpublished story, Easy Living, about a manicurist who steals a mink coat, into a screenplay for producer Morris Revnes. In his autobiography, Sturgis writes that, and I quote, Miss Kaspari's little story of deceit and disillusion was set aside, but the title was good one. According to Jeff Jekyll, this strategy was not uncommon for the screenwriter. He would often radically reconceive his stories, saving only tidbits from the original author's material for his own characterization. Sturgis reworked Kaspari's protagonist from a common thief into an honest and affable woman who, unsuspectingly, gets embroiled in a case of mistaken class identity. Social mobility was a recurring motif in Sturgis's body of work, and Andrew Horton explains that he had a fascination with, and I quote, rags to riches and interclass narratives, end quote, as evident in films like Easy Living and Child of Manhattan and The Power and the Glory. But when Sturgis presented his screenplay to Revnes, he was told 1936 was not the time for comedies. Sturgis wrote in his autobiography, and I quote, Revnes wanted to abandon the project. I disagreed. Any time was a good time for comedies, end quote. Sturgis was convinced that the project would be a hit, so in mid-1936, he brought the idea to Mitchell Lyson, who jumped at the chance to direct it. Lyson lamented to his biographer, David Chirichetti, that, and I quote, he was getting just a little bored with the polite drawing room comedies that I'd been doing up to that point, such as Four Hours to Kill and Thirteen Hours by Air. He added, I decided to cut loose and do a lot of slapstick. Arthur Hornblow Jr., whom Sturgis described as the only man who can strut sitting down, came on to produce. For the role of J.B. Ball, Lyson and Hornblow settled on boisterous Ed Arnold. For his son John, Paramount cast leading man Ray Milan, who allegedly received the most fan mail among the studio's roster of stars. For the female lead, they looked to Gene Arthur, who had signed a one-picture freelance deal with the studio in March of 1937, much to the surprise of her home studio, Columbia. Arthur was dissatisfied with the roles that Columbia had been offering her, and longed for greater career autonomy. Her deal with Paramount was her first bid for independence. She had no intention of returning to Columbia, and instead wanted to pursue a freelance career, stating, I wanted to make quality pictures and amount to something, or else not be in the business at all. Studio head Harry Cohen wasn't having it. Arthur's biographer, Jerry Vermeil, writes that when studio boss learned about Arthur's Paramount deal, 
He filed an injunction against her and reminded her that she was still under contract to Columbia for three more years. Thankfully, her contract had a bit of wiggle room. Although she was technically still employed at Columbia, her contract stipulated that she could pursue two film projects per year outside of her home studio. Harry Cohen agreed not to fight her on easy living. Production was slated to begin in March of 1937, but was pushed back until April 5th so that Lyson could recover from minor surgery. When filming began, Sturgis soon grew weary of Lyson's approach to comedy. Sturgis was an admirer of slapstick humor and incorporated it into a number of his screenplays, including Easy Living and Sullivan's Travels. Alexander King once called him the Toscanini of Pratt Falls. And in 1941, Sturgis even wrote a list of 11 rules for box office appeal, which concluded with the advice, a pratfall is better than anything. We see that push to the absolute limit in the film's automat scene, which is arguably one of the greatest comedy sequences in a Sturgis film and even in Hollywood comedies. Mary, recently fired from her job at the boy's constant companion and decked out in her fur coat, tries to get something to eat. She doesn't have enough money, so John Jr., who works at the automat, says he'll rig the food trap doors to open so she can get a decent meal. Listen. You in again. You go over to the hot dish window. Hot kiss window. What's the matter? You got something wrong with your teeth? I said hot dish window, smarty. You go over there and pick out what you like. See, you know, I went back and whipped the gag. And we're out back. Say, what are you trying to do? Land us all in the ch ug? I'll put the nickels in when I get paid and you can pay me back sometime. I'm not that hungry. Don't be a sucker, sister. That beef pie is a wow. Suppose they see you. Well, I'll say the gag was stuck. Now go on, I'll meet you behind the grapefruit. No, wait, wait. Needless to say, chaos ensues when he pulls the lever open to all the trap doors. I won't bother playing a sound clip from that scene since it's mostly just noise, but trust me when I say that Sturgis orchestrated a beautiful cacophony of pratfalls, punches, and ground pepper. Forgotten men pile in from the street and go wild, scarfing down as much food and coffee as they can fill their stomachs with. They smack, grab, and elbow each other for every last morsel of food. All the while, and this is the chef's kiss of the scene, Mary sits calmly to the side eating her beef pie. It's an uproarious scene that is quintessentially Preston Sturgis. When it came to studio-era slapstick, he was the undisputed king. Now, Sturgis believed that Lyson was an interior decorator at heart and lamented privately to friends that the director was cluttering up the film with ornate sets and direction that did not work in tandem with his snappy comedy style. Sturgis's comment has a tinge of ego, but his biographer, Diane Jacobs, believes that his feelings were not personal. He felt that he had a clearer vision for his script than Lyson and believed that he would have been a better choice to direct the film. But perhaps Sturgis's feelings were not entirely without merit. As late as the 1970s, Lyson took credit for the film's automat scene. He told David Chirichetti, and I quote, I thought, what would happen if all the doors in the automat opened at once and all the bums in New York rushed in to get free food? I took it from there, and it was the biggest mess you've ever seen in your life. I had every stuntman in Hollywood in there taking pratfalls, and Jean just sat there, calmly eating her pie throughout the whole mess. However, archival records show that Sturgis's first draft was peppered with slapstick elements. It also included a substantial passage in which a bum whistles an alert that free food was available in the automat. Now, it's always difficult to ascribe definitive authorial credit on collaborative medium like film, but in this case, the automat scene is textbook Sturgis. But I think in their own way, both men contributed to the scene's riotous comedy. Sturgis brought the boisterous comedic pratfalls and class consciousness, while Leeson gave it pacing and style. 
By contrast, Lyson was a bit more complimentary towards Sturgis. On last season's episode on Hands Across the Table, I discussed his early years working as an art director under Cecil B. DeMille. He drew upon that experience to design the film's 15-foot-long ornate bathtub in the 14-room suite of Hotel Louis, an idea that Sturgis based on the Waldorf Towers, which had been a financial failure during the Depression. In the scene in which Mary and John are inspecting the bathtub, Lyson remembers that Milan, and I quote, actually got stuck when we were filming the shot, and it was the funniest thing to watch him crawl out, so he kept the camera grinding and we used it. Then he put on a terry cloth robe that had stolen from such and such hotel on it, end quote. He added that that was one of Preston Sturgis's best gags. Less than a month into production, the Federated Motion Picture Crafts went on strike. The FMPC represented Hollywood's painters, draftsmen, makeup artists, hairdressers, and scenic artists, and they demanded recognition, a union shop, and separate contracts for affiliated crafts. During the six-week strike, which ended with contracts and the dissolution of the FMPC, producers scrambled to fill in the labor gap. Rather than putting existing productions on hold in support of the strikers, many, including Arthur Hornbrillow Jr., opted to hire non-union workers. According to licensed assistant Eleanor Broder, Jean Arthur was terribly concerned with the way she looked on screen. So, to ease her nerves, Lyson personally directed her hair and wardrobe tests, and even assisted with her hair and makeup. Now, Arthur has been unfairly maligned by some of her contemporaries for being a quote-unquote difficult person to work with, but as often is the case with introverts, her shyness was misinterpreted as rudeness, and behavior that may have been perceived negatively was actually masking her deep-rooted anxiety. Lyson sensed Arthur's vulnerability and aimed to put her at ease by giving her extra attention. He said, and I quote, if an actress is satisfied with the way she looks on screen, she'll devote all her attention to her acting, end quote. Just as production was scheduled to wrap, Paramount faced an unexpected legal hurdle. On July 7th, just one day before production ended, Paramount head Adolf Zucker received a letter from 20th Century Fox head Daryl Zanuck claiming that Fox owned the film rights to the Hungarian play Dear Comet by Attila Orbach, upon which they claimed Easy Living had been based. In 1933, Fox had released a film adaptation called My Lips Betray, and they were slated to release a Sonia Henny film called Thin Ice that September, also loosely based on the same Hungarian play. According to a detailed scenario provided by Thin Ice producer Raymond Griffith, Fox's film was about, and I quote, a poor girl living in poor circumstances who by accident gets into the car of an important man. She is then mistaken for the mistress of the important man. Sound familiar? In his letter, Zanuck explained, and I quote, There is no question in my mind, but someone sold you or your scenario department a New York version of our Hungarian play. There is no question, but what the entire premise of Easy Living is exactly the same, and a number of the individual scenes are even the same. Too many of them are the same to blame it on coincidence, end quote. On July 9th, Fox's lawyer, George Wasson, wrote a letter to Zanuck reminding him that Thin Ice had cost the studio upwards of a million dollars. At his urging, Zanuck sent a memo to Zucor stating, and I quote, We are positive that the release of your production prior to a reasonable period after the release of our picture would absolutely destroy the value of our picture to us. But we do not wish to alter the cordial relations which exist between our respective companies unless you immediately give us assurance that you will not exhibit 
or further exhibit your said production until after the completed exhibition of our motion picture in the first run houses, we will be forced to commence action against your company. In short, Fox requested that Paramount delay the release of Easy Living until after Thin Ice made its money in first-run theaters, or they would take legal action. Ideally, though, they wanted Paramount to shelve the film completely. That same day, Zucker sent Zanuck a letter replying, The charges, insinuations, and tone of these communications are wholly unjustified and unwarranted and have no basis in fact. Moreover, Zucker claimed that Easy Living was substantially different from Thin Ice, specifically that, unlike the Hungarian play, their protagonist was completely ignorant to the fact that other characters suspect her of being JB's mistress. Zucker ended his letter by stating, I must advise you that there's no reason why we should, and we do not intend to, alter our present plans and commitments for the release of our picture. Paramount was holding firm. On July 13th, George Wasson sent Paramount a third letter reiterating Fox's claims that Easy Living was identical to My Lips Betray and that the studio had no choice but to pursue legal action. That same day, Wasson received a telegram from Fox's New York office informing him that after serious review, the studio did not believe we could sustain our claim of infringement against Easy Living because, in their words, treatment, development, and details are entirely different. Characters are entirely different. There's almost no scenes or situation common to both scripts in which the same lines could have been used. Wasson and Zanuck were shocked, to say the least, and they had no choice but to back down. Paramount had won. Easy Living was released on July 16, 1937 to generally positive critical reviews. Variety described it as, and I quote, a poor man's imitation of my man Godfrey, end quote, which, in my opinion, misunderstands the film completely. Other reviewers were far more positive. Photoplay called it an outlandish bit of silly sophistication and the peak of all these mad-mad farces that had become popular in the mid-1930s. Life magazine called it funnier and goofier than any comedy of the year and recommended it to sweet and sour dispositions. Easy Living asked a simple question. What would happen if unimaginable wealth suddenly fell into your lap? What first seems like an opulent apparition from Fifth Avenue Gods quickly turns into a tornadic burden in Mary's life. The film uses a sable fur coat as a commentary on the chasm between the wealthy and the working class during the Great Depression, and the chaos that ensues when opulence is thrust upon someone who least expects it. The absurdity of such class conflict is evident from J.B. and Mary's first encounter. Where did you find it? Find what? How do I know it's yours? Well, look at the label and see if it doesn't say A.B. Zicklin Company. You work for a living? Yes, that's right, all right. What? Why, of course I do. <laughs> well, I, well, I don't see what business that is of you. Say, look what you did to my hat. Do you own a fur coat? No, I don't, but I still <laughs> That's where you're wrong. <laughs> you own that one. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> now, just a minute, Santa Claus. Huh? What's the matter with it? Is it hot? Well, I don't know. I've never worn one. What kind of fur is it, anyway? Zebra. Anything else you want to know? Yes, I'd like to know how you get a... Let me give you a piece of advice, young lady. Don't be too wise. Don't think you know all the answers. Things have been done for people. Many nice things. Remember that. Well, what do you want? Uh, say, um, could you lend me 10 cents? Lend you? Of course I can. It's payday, and I forgot when I got off. It was my last dime, and I... Well... Of course, if you're short. Oh, of course I'm not short. Don't be silly. You mean to take a bus? Oh, what's the matter with this bus? Oh, no. Oh, hop in, hop in. 
Ironically, neither Mary or JB are in possession of a dime, but while her reason is poverty, his is a result of extreme affluence. Easy Living makes it clear that these characters move through the world in completely different ways, existing on opposite sides of the economic and class spectrums. The film is just one of many screwball comedies of the 1930s that reflected on contemporaneous social politics, and the screwball genre itself was born out of the decade's financial turmoil. With nearly one in four Americans out of work and a nearly 26% unemployment rate in 1933, the United States was submerged into what would turn into a nearly decades-long economic crisis, slowly aided by President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal programs. Like other industries, the Depression also hit Hollywood hard. After years of unencumbered prosperity and a late 1920s attendance boom from the novelty of sound film technology, dwindling cinema attendance and a drop in ticket prices from about 90 million at 30 cents per ticket in 1930 to 60 million at 20 cents forced the studios like Paramount and Fox to go into receivership, while Warner Brothers sold valuable assets like theaters to stay afloat. With the industry reporting a collective loss of nearly $250 million between 1930 and 1933, it's no surprise that 1930s socioeconomic politics took hold in much of the decade's cinema culture and in the most popular film genre, screwball comedy. Despite its broad socioeconomic context, screwball comedy is not overtly moralistic, nor should it be mistaken for social realism. Hence Sturgis's rationale of abandoning Kaspari's fallen woman angle for a story with a lighthearted touch. Screwball comedies like Easy Living are what Stanley Cavell famously called fairy tales for the depression, blending a Hollywood light social commentary with fast-paced and farcical plots, madcap romance, and eccentricity. Therefore, while Easy Living uses the Depression as a vehicle to explore the rupture between the wealthy and the working classes, it also revels in fantasy and the amusing eccentricities of the super wealthy. The Depression and its effects are present throughout Easy Living, just as Mary's new sable coat upends every aspect of her simple working class life. As I mentioned earlier, she loses her job at the Boy's Constant Companion, a weekly youth magazine, after her colleagues suspect she was gifted the fur coat by her sugar daddy. Expect us to believe, Miss Smith, that a complete stranger, having dropped a valuable mink coat... Oh, it isn't mink. It's, it's Kalinsky. Mink or Kalinsky, uh, whatever that is. It's mink. It is not mink. Well, I ought to know mink. My mother had a little it chicken. It doesn't really mink. matter. The thing that does matter is that you expect us to well, believe... Well, I know that... it's terribly unusual, and I suppose if anybody told me that... It's I most never... unusual, so unusual, in fact, that... This it... is a boy's magazine, you know. Well, what about it? The boy's constant companion regrets that it will no, no longer no, require Wait a your... minute. Wait a minute. Now, I'll tell you. Uh, uh, you see, um, I didn't want you to know that I was so extravagant. And uh, I suppose it was awfully foolish of me to try to tell you uh, I'm no good at making up stories at all. You see, I bought the coat out of my own savings, yes. And, and I thought that you'd think that I... That, well... So, well, that's why I was late. Where did you buy it? Uh, Ezekiel's. And how much did you pay for it? Oh, uh, well, I I don't see why I should have to tell you that. That coat cost $400. If it cost it a... It did not. It cost a, it cost $162.79. Now we're getting somewhere. Give me uh, Zico's fur store, please. Oh, well, I... Uh, Oh, I, I don't know really if it, it cost exactly $162.79. She's the first part of the Did you sell a Kalinsky coat this morning for. Uh, well, anybody who's lying on the mail was saying they had lots of prices there. Cents. Uh, you did not? Nothing under 500 
Thank you very much indeed. I believe that's all, Miss Smith. As I said before, the ethical requirements of the boy's constant companion are... Well, it did hit me on the head. <laughs> <laughs> Just be careful you don't get hit by a diamond bracelet. <laughs> Without a stable income, Mary quickly falls behind on the $7 per week rent of her modest one-bedroom apartment. My favorite scene in the film also happens to be one that is most pointedly engages with the Depression-era poverty. Performed entirely in pantomime, Mary arrives home at around dinner time only to discover that her rent is overdue and she has only a paltry sum stashed away in her piggy bank, which she reluctantly breaks in desperation. And please watch this movie for that scene alone, it's beautifully acted. And yet, for all that Easy Living explores Mary's dire financial circumstances and the burden of her new luxurious acquisition, the overall picture that the film paints is far from grim. Cavell's fairy tales for the Depression summary could not be more apt, as Mary's new coat soon brings her an obscene embarrassment of riches. The same evening that she breaks her piggy bank, she receives an offer to live in the palatial penthouse apartment in Hotel Louis. Mr. Louis Louis, the hotelier, hopes that Mary's notoriety and presumed romantic association with J.B. will bring his failing business ample publicity and swathes the wealthy customers. On a guided tour of the penthouse, he attempts to impress her with all the latest furnishings. Uh, your bedroom. My bedroom? Nice place to flop, huh? Couldn't you be cozy here, huh? Well, <laughs> yes, it's it's cozy, all right, but but I don't think I understand. Uh, uh, how much would you pay me? How much would I pay you? For what? Well, for, for whatever it is. Don't you think you should pay me a little bit of something? For what? For what? For what? I thought showing you the dining room, the kitchen, the bedroom, the, the horse. Um, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, are you trying to rent me this little number? Exacts. Is that why you sent for me? Certainly. <laughs> I think you've got the wrong Smith. You think so? <laughs> I'm sure of it. Mary's more incredulous than awestruck, believing that Louis has mistaken her for someone else. How could she receive such an offer to live in luxury? In desperation, Louis offers to match Mary's current rent of $7 a week. I'll make some concessions. Well, that's awfully sweet of you, Mr. Louis, but even if you... We'll need you more than a half away. Look, even if you came the whole way... Uh, now, make... listen, listen, listen. What are you paying now? Seven dollars. No, no, no. I said, what are you paying now? I mean, rent, rent. Seven dollars. Seven dollars. Seven... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven? <laughs> yes, with breakfast, one egg. Uh, let me see. Seven dollars. Seven by seven, fifty-six, uh, minus... My dear young lady. Could you make it? Not seven times seven, Mr. Louis. One time seven. Seven dollars a week. A week? With breakfast. Oh, one egg. <laughs> seven dollars a week with a gymnasium. You drive in a hard bargain, my dear young lady. Seven dollars a week. But, Mr. Louis, it is I yours. Don't... But I don't it want... It is yours. You want breakfast? You got it. But look, I, I would... I want you here. One egg, two eggs, three eggs. Ostrich egg. What do I care? I'll send a truck and move you immediately. You can't, I owe for the week. <laughs> well, 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 we'll pay it. Lie. Uh, 
Why? 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 I'll tell you why. I don't beat around the back door to come down in the cold shoots. Uh, come here, please. Come here. You see them lights going on and off? Yes. That's bellboys. They switch the switches so the people don't know that my hotel is a fizzle. Now, that's, of course, strictly confidential. Oh, what a shame, Mr. Louis. But I'm with so you sorry. here, anyway, I have some legitimate lights in my towers. Oh, I see what you mean. You can do also me a little favor, too. What? The next time you see Mr. Ball... Mr. Who? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have mentioned names. The next time you see that certain party without a name, will you tell him what a beautiful layout we have here? What a beautiful, classy service we have here? Will you tell him that under no circumstances you will not move? Where? Whatever he does, the most good. Oh, you mean you want me to boost your hotel? That's the exact word. I could not have said that in ten years. Boosted in the right place and soon. Well, I'll do my best, Mr. Louis. N and loud. Yeah, loud. And how? Of course, Louis has no idea that Mary isn't actually J.B.'s mistress. While primarily motivated out of self-interest, his generous offer is based on the assumption that Mary is somebody, and with her $58,000 fur coat, Easy Living makes it clear that she is. Mary's influence or status is taken to the comedic brink, affecting not only her social status, but an entire economic system. The gossip-mongering public get their comeuppance when, under pressure from a stockbroker, Mary jokingly offers a tip on steel, given to her by John Jr. As a result of Mary's assumed relationship with JB, stockholders believe she has insider knowledge of market trends, and they begin to sell off their assets causing prices to plummet. A chaotic montage at the New York Stock Exchange, complete with shots of mounds of ticker tape and brokers yelling frantically, convey the extent of Mary's influence, as investors attempt to cash out before their stocks become worthless. At the same time, JB begins to buy up stock against the advice of his shareholders, eventually leading his bank to teeter on the brink of bankruptcy. Mr. Ball said steel was going down. Uh, only Mr. Holger. Only Mr. And H all the principal cities. Oh, you don't mean E.J. Holger and company? That must have been the screwball in the hall. Well, this is a fine time to find it out. Well, didn't you want it to go down? No, no, no! J.B., your blood pressure. No. Then why doesn't you tell him it's going up? Well, who? Holger. If a thing works once, it'll work twice. What do you mean, tell Holger of all the nonsensical, idiotic idea I ever heard in my life that... Yes, 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 th this is me. Well, this is me. I've got some very important news. Steel is going up. Do you understand? Up? Holy smoke. We'll have to cover right away. You'd better get plenty of covers. And uh, listen, I don't know what this means, but I understand that he's got it, uh, he's got it, uh, uh, what? What? 
Oh, give me a piece of paper, quick. Cornered. He cornered, yes, he's got it cornered. Do you know what that means? Holy mackerel. Are, are you sure? Goodbye. And don't forget to tell all the principal city. In true Hollywood fashion, the stock market and JB's finances are saved by the end of the film, but their precarity is an all-too-prescient reminder of the decade's economic instability. Even the bull of Broad Street, with his unfettered power and unimaginable riches, has the potential to fall. That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. All of the resources used for this episode are listed in the show notes. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye-bye! <laughs>